0: Welcome to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. Thanks for joining us once again today. Now, last week, we uh, were joined by my boss, Tim Beefus, the administrator there at Rock County Christian School, and we were talking about our family conference coming up in just a couple of weeks. And we're going to kind of continue that theme about the family. We're going to be talking about the new book just released, Christian Marriage, a comprehensive introduction by Dr. David Ayers of uh, the Grove City College out in Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Ayers, welcome to our podcast. It's
1: nice nice joining you today.
0: Well, this is, uh, you know, I, the little-known secret of the podcasting world is that when I get books, most of the time I just kind of uh, skim through them, get the basic idea, kind of a, enough to know uh, what to talk about with, with an author. Uh, but this book, I'm, I'm going through and it's like, wow, you know what, I've got to stop here because I really want to delve into this later and, and, and read this entire book. It's, it's really fascinating. Uh, so give us a little idea of, of why you wrote the book and uh, what, what readers can expect.
1: Well, you know, I wrote the book as an outcome of over 30 years of teaching in this area and even longer of kind of being involved or engaged in it. In terms of research, and I really felt that there was this huge hole mm. in terms of on the one hand, understanding what the Bible teaches about marriage and uh, the historical Christian doctrine on marriage, but also blending that with an understanding of history and you know historical various historical reference points uh, such as the Puritans, such as medieval debates about marriage and so forth. But then also modern social science, which which bears out very strongly what the scriptures teach about marriage. And so to basically blend all those together harmoniously uh, was really important to me. I also felt that there was a gap in rooting everything in in, and starting where God starts, which is what is marriage and why does it exist? Why did God create marriage and, and what did he intend for marriage to do? And until you understand that, everything else you talk about with regards to marriage is kind of up in the air. So if somebody says, well, you know, you need to have a good marriage. Well, to a Christian, a good marriage is a marriage that fits God's definition of it and does what marriage is, is intended to do. And so if you're going to choose a spouse uh, within which to carry out God's design for marriage, that's a little bit different than just choosing a spouse that pleases you personally in some right. way. Um And so in in all these things, you know, your understanding of divorce and remarriage, your understanding of how the church should support marriage, all of it really has to do with an understanding of what marriage is and what God intends it to do. And marriage is a creation ordinance created before the fall, upon which human society fundamentally rests
0: Hmm. and
1: the family rests on on marriage and, and and. Human society rests on the family, so it is, it is a very essential institution.
0: Right, and that's where I, we hear a lot about uh, the family being attacked, or marriage itself being attacked, marriage itself trying to be redefined. But I, I really feel like a lot of people who are defending marriage don't realize what they are defending. A, a lot of Christians even, their basic definition of a Christian marriage is simply something that's heterosexual, and you shouldn't get divorced. Outside of that, um, uh, th- there isn't a lot of teaching. That's what I appreciate about your book. You said you, you start where God starts. And so may, I want let's, let's jump right into that statement that you made about how you defined marriage. Marriage is a part of God's uh, creative design or creative order. Could you kind of unpack that statement for us?
1: Sure. It was created before the fall. And so if there had never been a fall, and C.S. Lewis depicts this in, per, in his book Paralander, which is the second part of his space trilogy, where Eve manages, with with the help of Professor Ransom, to successfully resist temptation um, and and remain sinless uh, beyond the defeat of Satan. And so you see, you know, at the end of that book, a world led by an Adam and an Eve figure as co-regents of that world, and they have children. And so. At the same time, God was looking forward to the fall. He has perfect foreknowledge. And marriage was a bulwark against the fall. So the things that he built into it, that marriage is is for procreation and the rearing of of good and godly offspring, that marriage is for the legitimate fulfillment of sexual desires, that marriage is for mutual help, a bulwark against loneliness, a support through Hmm. good times and bad. That just became so much... It's not that marriage became more important after the fall, but the full realization of its intent and design hmm. was certainly uh, you know, engaged at the fall in ways that, that really help us in, in the broken world in which we live. The other thing is marriage is a, a mystery, says Paul, that reflects the whole union of Christ and the church. And that's right. not something he said out of thin air. All through the Old Testament, God continually refers to himself in, per, in, in familiar terms to his people. Um, and one of those familiar terms is not only the father-child, but the husband-wife. It over and over again, he speaks to Israel as a as a bereaved husband uh, with a wayward wife. Uh, the, the Bible begins with a way. The, 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 the Old Testament ends with a ringing condemnation of, be, of the betrayal of Hebrew men against their wives, mm. the covenant of marriage. It begins, you know, with... With, a, with two simple married couples, one, one who were the parents of John the Baptist and the other one who were the parents of, of Jesus Christ. It, the, first, the, first, uh, the first miracle, as, as, as the great Anglican wedding ceremony notes and many other Protestant and Catholic traditions note, the first miracle was at Cana, Right. Uh, was at the wedding at Cana. And the Bible ends with the marriage of Christ to his church. And then the other thing, and this is something I think the Catholics have been better at really drawing out fully, uh, is that marriage reflects the trinity, hmm. that that a perfect union, a relationship of perfect love that existed eternally, and from out of that relationship of perfect love, uh, life flows. You know, life flows out of that relationship. So marriage is so profoundly important. And when we, when we uh, dishonor it in any way, or when we teach about it falsely, uh, we bring it... Uh, we, in a sense, attacking God's very design, and in many ways, His very person, even though I, we really oftentimes don't fully understand that.
0: Hmm. Where do you think we as Christians often, what do we misunderstand about marriage, or what do you think we get wrong about it?
1: Well, what I sometimes have said to my students over the years, and, and I, this could probably scandalize some of them, hmm. but I say, look if marriage is what many hetero, most heterosexuals today believe it is, then there's no reason that homosexuals shouldn't get married. If In fact, if marriage is what a lot of people in the church now believe that it is, there's no reason that they shouldn't get married, because they view it as a personally fulfilling relationship um, that, that essentially meets our individual needs, what's oftentimes called in the sociological literature therapeutic marriage or individualistic marriage, which is, has essentially won out culturally completely and it's also made enormous inroads into the church. And so but the thing is is that marriage isn't that. Marriage is a is a solemn covenant enacted before witnesses and sealed through marital consummation mm. through the sexual through the sexual act. And and it is something that you uh you you put yourself under the terms of that covenant. You enter into it. You do not create it. You do not make it up. And so the church, first of all, by walking away from that understanding and then allowing our own ranks to be permeated by high levels of divorce, uh, high tolerance for all types of misbehavior, including among our church leaders, uh, uh, scandalous levels of premarital sexual relationship, cohabitation, and all these things, then we turn from that and we want to make commentary about what the world is doing. and. We've essentially, we've, we've, we've gutted our witness. I, I like to say that we're, defeat, we're being defeated in our culture as a whole, but we're also being defeated at home in our own marriages. Mm-hmm. And it also then hurts the people of God. It, 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 it inflicts the same damage on Christians that it inflicts on people in the world when we treat marriage as something less than it's supposed to be. Right.
0: You mentioned marriage as a, as a covenant before God in front of witnesses which in my mind brings up uh, you know this is also a, a civil ordinance to some degree what to what degree should uh civil government be involved in uh the whole marriage question because there are some you know, in, in the whole uh, homosexual marriage debate there are the libertarian view that would say you know what let's just pull civil government out of it completely and and leave it as a simply a religious ordinance
1: you know, that's a very difficult question, and it's one that there's, that there's not a lot of clear answers. The, it's it's interesting that it's the Protestants that actually elevated the, the, the role of civil government in marriage, partly to take it out from under control of the church, and um, you you have various pathologies associated. You know, there are blessings associated with it as well, but pathologies associated with church-controlled marriage. So, for example, um, it. If, if the government declared all that, that uh, let's say, Presbyterian ministers are not allowed to conduct wedding ceremonies and that only Anglican ministers can conduct wedding ceremonies, then suddenly every Presbyterian marriage becomes invalid. Hmm. And that actually happened in the United States and in, in areas in and around Virginia where, where basically, literally, the crown ultimately declared a lot of the Scottish and Scots-Irish marriages to be invalid. Um, so a lot of it was moving civil marriage, and that's where history really helps us uh, to basically the idea that the government would support and and come behind marriage and an act to protect the, the covenant or what or what we would call the legal side of it, the contractual obligations associated with marriage. And at the same time when the government uh, is, is not only moved now towards remember, remember that, Gay marriage, as it stands now, also includes a lot of things that people didn't think about with Obergefell. So, f- over so for example, gay marriage now includes a, a transgender woman marrying a transgender woman, hmm. a transgender woman marrying a biological, a biologically non-transgender woman. You know, and you just continue to work the combination. There's no reason that plural marriage would not be acceptable under the same sets of right. presumptions. Those arguments were made before the Supreme Court, as were similar arguments about ancestral marriages. And, and, in fact, we now see plural marriages, in fact, de facto plural marriages, becoming widely accepted, even celebrated on television. So, you know, as this basically spreads out, Christians are going to have to take a look at their relationship with the civil government. I, I think that the, the time is coming where, where, if things continue to move in the direction that they're going, and I hope this doesn't happen, where ordained ministers in church communions or denominations that do not accept gay marriage will not be given state sanction to license weddings. Hmm. Uh, And what I mean is to to basically, you know, you get the wedding license, but then the person who signs it and seals it is the person who conducts the wedding. And it might be the justice of the peace, but it might also be a ministry. But what happens if conservative ministers are no longer allowed to conduct weddings that are that are viewed as official by, let's say, the state of New York? At that point, you know, the church may need to just pull out. And, and, and so I don't really support the libertarian argument here. I think there's a lot of good reasons for the civil government to be involved in marriage. But at a certain point, we're going to have to ask the question whether the civil government's role in marriage has become destructive. Mm. And... Um, Whether or not, for example, as I've heard some pastors say, well, we're going to conduct weddings in our churches and we're going to view that as a true marriage, but then we're going to encourage couples to go to the state and get that license so they have the legal protection. Um, But that we're going to actually make that separate. We're no longer going to sign that document for the state.
0: Wow. Let's get back to the church. And how do you believe, or what's your advice to churches, how to create an atmosphere where healthy marriages can be sustained, even starting from uh, pre-marriage counseling through uh, that couple that have been there. How, how do churches promote a healthy view of marriage?
1: Well, one of the pastors that, that really gave me a lot of feedback on my manuscript as I was writing this, Nate Devlin is pastor of Beverly Heights Presbyterian in Pittsburgh. Hmm. And, uh, I'm actually teaching a class on this right down there right now. He, he told me that his favorite chapter in the book was the last one because I basically say that the church is the way the church should address the marriage issues in the church is through just normal Christianity. And I, what do we say to Normal Christianity. Uh, are you making sure that the people who are part of your church are there every week and that they're receiving the ongoing care of the church? That in itself is huge statistically in terms of the success of marriage. Are they plugged into the church? Are there, you know, uh, are they getting that ongoing help? Because a lot of times marriages fall apart because of causes that... You, are, you wouldn't say that they're outside the marriage, but the husband develops a drinking problem or an addiction to pornography, right? Or the woman is beginning to spend time with negative people or constantly ripping mm-hmm. her husband down. You know, In other words, it's these little foxes that are essentially kind of ripping away at the roots of the marriage, and, and, and a healthy church is addressing all those issues. Right. Um, the, the other thing is that a healthy church is going to have a very strong premarital counseling program. They should have marriage mentoring programs with trained, older married couples, you know, mentoring younger couples in the faith. They should have they should on, have ongoing intervention and support with marriage. They should be, there's a pastor friend of mine, he was my pastor in Texas, who said that if pastors only take care of sick sheep, they have a lot of sick sheep. Hmm. You know, they, you don't wait until the sheep gets sick. Right. you focus on getting getting things very early you don't you don't wait until somebody's got a full-blown pornography addiction you deal with it when they come to you to, at those struggles are at the very beginning and you come in alongside them and you help and it should be compassionate but it should be very forthright and honest and I think I think if a church is functioning the way a church is supposed to be you know then those those people that are plugged into that church whether they're they're dating. They're single. They're married. They're older. They're going to be getting the support that they need for their marriage, but it's, it really does need to include marriage mentoring, premarital counseling, marital counseling, and uh, you know, preaching on it, marriage retreats, anything that the church can do. Because remember, this is this is not something we can take for granted anymore. We, right. we know that our people in our church need help with
0: it. Yeah. Of course, this all presumes that Christians are in church, and I try to make that uh, point yeah. every time I get the get the chance is that christians ought to be in church ought to be a part of the body we were never meant to be separated from that and so of course you're uh you're gonna have some problems if you are not connected to the body whose head is christ so uh want to quick throw that Absolutely. in there <laughs> well let's um change gears a little bit and and, and talk about the singles in the church or uh, single christians who are uh looking to be married we live in uh, i i think a difficult time uh, where there's a lot of pressures on singles, not just with uh, premarital sex, but even um, the whole dating culture, and now we have uh, the online perspective of all that. You know, you've got apps on your phone where you can find... Uh, so what advice do you give to single people who are uh, searching God's God's will in this area? Well,
1: first of all, single single people need to be grounded very, very... Fully in a Christian understanding of sex and issues like cohabitation, which statistics yeah. show us, we're losing that battle with belief among the younger singles in our church, and they, they really need to understand that that before God, but also for their own welfare, for their own future welfare, especially serial cohabitation, serial sex partners, uh, those are those are ultimately really decrease the chance that any of their that their future marriage will be successful. The the other thing is that, uh, and not to mention things that they can, like an STD that could shape the rest of their lives. Right. But the, uh, you know, abortions and, you know, all this kind of stuff. The other thing, though, is that for them to understand that being in a church with lots of healthy marriages, even if you're not married yourself, really creates an environment in which you can thrive as a single. Right. And in which you can really participate in the lives of those folks. Not, Not necessarily having to babysit for them all the time. But being able to just to see that and to have that as a witness around you and the encouragement uh, that being around children and older couples and all that really helps to round out your understanding of your life, you know, as a, as a single person. And the, a bad marriage is worse than no marriage. And so nobody should be rushing into marriage, but they also shouldn't be unnecessarily prolonging it beyond what yeah. their capacities allow. You know, if, if you wait to get, if, if, if Christians keep routinely waiting to get married until their late 20s and early 30s, it's going to be really hard for them to resist sexual temptation, and a lot of times it's not because they're not mature enough or they haven't found the right partner, it's because they're looking for marriage to be like a capstone experience. You know, when I have all the money I need, when I've, right. when I've got a mortgaged house, when my career is established and my graduate degrees are finished, then I'll get married, and... And then people turn a blind eye to, the, to, to what that means sexually and in terms of cohabitation. That is really unnecessary. Marriage mm-hmm. can be, once you're mature enough to get married and you know who you should be getting married to, marriage can be a foundation and a platform to do all those things. And that's what people in my generation tended to do, and it works very well.
0: You know, And that's a good point because that, that's something that sounds conservative, sounds good, that, hey, you know, you need to get all your ducks in a row before you actually get married. And we're not saying we should, you know, jump into that unnecessarily. But, um, yeah, we don't have to have everything um, necessarily perfectly in order. In fact, I'm not even sure you can have everything perfectly in order. <laughs> um, no. I, I, I know my wife, and I, and I I didn't know what perfect order was <laughs> until uh, I had someone who could point out some things that I wasn't seeing. Uh, and just kind of echo what you yeah, were absolutely. saying, uh, I, I grew up in a single uh, parent home, and so I didn't have uh, the benefit of uh, what some have. But, you know, being in the church, I I, I didn't get married till a little later, but I was a, a, a single youth pastor for a little while. And being around other couples, being around families, began kind of filling in gaps that I, I didn't have before. And so... As a single person, even learning, you know, sitting through—I uh, remember sitting through a marriage conference—that that helped me. That, that whole experience helped shape what uh, marriage would be for me. So it, it's incredibly valuable for, for single people to be mixed in with uh, with married couples, especially uh, healthy marriage couples. <coughs> I want to. Um, our time is kind of slipping away here. Uh, but we, we hit on, on premarital sex, um, but I, I wanted to, this was a really fascinating uh, quote you have on page 353 of your book. Uh, you say this about about sexual union, uh, and I hope you kind of just unpack this statement. Because even people who, we live in a culture, you don't have to uh, go out and commit premarital sex to, be, uh, to damage your marriage, but just pornography and the internet... All of that uh, has has uh, effects on the marriage. You say this, Just as alcoholics can never truly and properly appreciate fine wine, those caught up in a sex-crazed culture with no regard for marital boundaries can never truly grasp the essence and joy of godly lovemaking. Yep,
1: that, that's exactly true. And, you know, the fact is, is that until until we could appreciate that that lovemaking between a married couple is not about the pursuit of some kind of a intense physical experience Yeah. but but, but that the comfort and love of, of a middle-aged and even elderly couple in the act of covenantal lovemaking uh, is in a sense beautiful and it, it reflects deep things about the kingdom of god and it can be it can be so many things beyond that, and and it really is. I think the um, I, I I picked that up from a quote I heard from a pastor years ago that you know alcoholics lose their ability to, to appreciate fine wine hmm. because all they're looking for is a high. Yeah. And so, you know, the the fact is is if you're looking for a high, if you're looking for an exhilarating sexual experience, then then. What we know, statistically, is that achieving that is best by, by, by not sticking with any one person for too long. Because newness or is, is one of the biggest bases behind thrill, and that's where pornography comes in. But that's not what really marital lovemaking is all about. Hmm. And so it can certainly be deeply pleasurable, and it's not, it's not wrong for, for couples to strive to help it to be pleasurable. But there's also, it, it's like with food. You know, there's, there's the basic meal. And then there's the occasional gourmet feast. And I think people get embarrassed when I talk about that, but it's true. And Mm -hmm. so there are times for that, but there are times for just a regular, everyday lovemaking between a married couple that draws them together and seals their relationship and provides them with relief and comfort in their everyday life.
0: You know, I'm a Christian school teacher, so I work a lot with teenagers, and there's this horrible, misconceived idea that, you know, I'm— I'm using pornography right now because I have a desire and I can't fulfill that right now. But once I get married, I won't have to use that stuff anymore. Uh, and what you were just saying is is a great way to combat that false idea that there's no switch to turn and the damage has already been done at that point. So let me ask you, uh, you know, what, what do you counsel the couple that uh, maybe they're thinking about getting married and it's been exposed that? Uh, maybe one of these guys have, you know, been engaged in uh, either premarital sex or they're they're hooked on uh, internet pornography.
1: Well, that's the norm now. Hmm. And um, I've I've done a fair amount of premarital counseling. I'm not a I'm not a full time counselor, but I've I've probably done premarital counseling with at least maybe ten to twelve couples using sure. something called the prepare system, which is very good. Um, You know, you repent, and you you bring in some accountability and you move on, and a lot of it depends on how serious the issue is and how how cleanly and and out front it's addressed. Um, And, you know, for for both the men and the women, you know, sometimes the phrase is used, secondary virginity. Um, You know, I don't know if that's the best phrase to use, but certainly you want to, to get that substantially in the rearview mirror before you get married and, and know that, that the issue is being taken care of seriously. Uh, it, it, self-disclosure is part of engagement where those skeletons that are in people's closets need to be put out in the open. That has to be done in the right time, in the right way, and I don't think... it Normally needs to be done in a way that is overly graphic, and mm. that makes it difficult for either partner to, you know, overcome the pictures that they're putting in, into each other's mind. But that there also shouldn't be anything that comes bouncing out, you know, five or ten years into a marriage, right. that the other partner could say, "I wish I'd known that when we got married," or "I wish I'd known you had an ongoing struggle with that." But, you know, because because oftentimes what they find is is that, you know, most women today really understand how hard it is. You know, I. When I was 16 years old, you didn't have 24/7 anonymous access to right. pornography of the most base level possible to human beings to concoct. Uh, you had to go somewhere. You had to go after it intentionally. You often, oftentimes, people that wanted to do that had to go through public embarrassment. Uh, now, it's 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 totally cloaked, and most people have a device in their pocket by which they could right. access it any time. Th- that's a really tough thing. It doesn't excuse it but we, we need to have a lot of mercy and grace when we engage that reality, because it is hard.
0: Now, Also in the book, you use, uh, and we're, it's probably our last question here, but you use a lot of social science data, and sometimes Christians misuse that because I don't think they know how to properly handle such, but you have a background in this. Uh, tell us how you use that in the book, and, and, and uh, for, what, for what purpose?
1: Well, I use it, and I blend it in quite a bit. First of all, to help people understand the realities that they're dealing with. Yeah. You know, like uh, how many of the teens in your church are probably involved in these particular activities? What, what, in anonymous surveys, what are they going to give us the reasons for that? What are the real divorce rates? You know, who is more likely and less likely to get divorced? Uh, When does divorce happen? How does premarital counseling lower the risk of divorce? All those kinds of things. But because I try to blend it in harmoniously and I try to... I try to write in a compelling way, and when I talk about beautiful things, I want my writing to be beautiful, you know, so that it doesn't come across as dry and clinical. So that, in a sense, uh, it's not like over here we're going to talk about the scriptures, here we're going to talk about the history, and over here we're going to talk about social science, but to, but to blend it in together really quite naturally. You know, the Bible says, for example, that marriage is a form of mutual health and comfort, and then social science shows that married people are live longer or healthier or less likely to commit suicide or less likely to abuse drugs you know those kind of things which supports the biblical account and helps us to see that marriage does do what god wants it to do and that it does it for the for the unbeliever and the believer alike if that marriage is a healthy marriage
0: well again i want to remind our, our listeners the book we're talking about is christian marriage a comprehensive introduction by dr david ayers and we've really, we haven't even scratched the surface of material you can find here in the book. We haven't talked about marriage. We haven't talked about much about history or, or, the, or the Puritans or anything like that. So there's so much more. You'll you want to get the book, again, Christian Marriage, a Comprehensive Introduction. We're going to have a link to that on our website. Uh, Dr. Ayers, thank you so much for, for taking the time and talking with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. It was really delightful. I
0: want to remind all of our listeners also, our, our family conference is coming up. At uh, Rock County Christian School, you can learn more about that at www.rccsfamilyconference.org, and we'll have a whole class, a whole breakout session on the meaning of marriage taught by uh, my friend Josh uh, uh, Dostel. And you won't want to miss all of the other stuff there as well. Check out our website at www.basicbiblepodcast.org. So until next time, have a great rest of your week.